Section 8 of the Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr Settled Results in Criticism, Parts 4 through 5 Part 4 Readers may now judge whether, instead of assured results, we ought not more properly to speak of critical uncertainties. Before, however, touching on other points, it may be desirable again to attempt something in the way of a positive construction. This can best be done by taking up the question still held over. Assuming certain results to be settled in the critical schools, I would ask, should they be settled? This brings us back to the critical theories of J and E. The dates of these documents, according to Mr. Addis, are among the things of capital moment, on which there is agreement. We have seen how far this is from being the case, but let that pass. He puts the dates at between 850 and 750. Even were these dates granted, it should be observed that we should still be a long way from the conclusion that the contents of the narratives are merely legendary, as is too commonly assumed. The essential thing is not the date at which a narrative assumed its present literary form. A narrative may be late and yet be based on much older and perfectly reliable materials. The older narratives of the Bible, patriarchal and mosaic, have a character of naturalness and truth, a force and liveliness of representation, a suitability to the conditions of the age, a penetration by the divine purpose, a coherence with the whole plan of God's revelation, which must forever remain a bulwark against the resolution into late popular legends, casually brought together and wrought into their present shape by some unknown writers well down in the monarchy. But I now go further and ask, what are the grounds for this relatively late dating of J and E? The reader will be a clever man if he can discover them. It is sometimes argued that, since J and E are many centuries later than Moses, Deuteronomy must be later still, because it presupposes the history and legislation of the former works. But the argument surely may be as effectively reversed, for if Deuteronomy be an older, still more as I believe, a substantially mosaic book, the immediate result is to throw back the J and E history and legislation on which it is based into actually mosaic times. Why should these be put so much later? There is nothing I know of that necessitates or warrants so late a dating as the critics suggest, but much that speaks against it. Allowing the fullest weight to the casual indications on which the critics lay stress to show a post-Mosaic origin of Genesis, none of them points to a date beyond the early days of the kingdom, and all may easily be due to later annotation. There is no trace of allusion in the history to the divided kingdom. Gunkel, a sufficiently advanced critic, will not allow any allusion even to the reigns of Saul or David or Solomon. Wherein, then, lies the reason for this late dating of the critics, which constantly tends, with the development of their theories, to become later? For reason of some kind, there surely must be. If the matter is probed to its bottom, apart from the influence of the judgment of a revolutionary theory of religion, 
I believe the explanation will be found to lie in certain obscure mirrorings of later events in the history of Israel which they think they discern in the simple patriarchal stories. For example, Jacob's vow at Bethel, Genesis 28, is intended to sanction the custom of paying tithes at the calf shrine at Bethel. The Syrians' wars are mirrored in the relations of Jacob and Laban, Genesis 31. The story of the sin of Judah, Genesis 38, is intended as an Ephraimite mockery of the southern kingdom, etc. Footnote. As the stories are supposed to be the reflections of contemporary events, there is no time for the rise of legends, and they must be regarded as the work of deliberate invention. End footnote. The dates must therefore be as late as these events. The reader may decide whether this is science or a play of unbridled imagination. Gunkel rejects these mirrorings in toto. I advance now a step further in the testing of these settled results and ask, why should J and E be distinguished as two documents at all? This touches a crucial point. I venture to challenge the assertion that the priestly history and legislation ever existed as a separate document. I now do the same about J and E. It is not difficult, indeed, to understand how E came to originally be separated from the Jehovistic and older Elohistic sections, that is, through its use of the name God and its contrast in style with the remaining Elohistic parts. But no reason was ever shown for setting it up as an independent document, nor do its character or contents favor such an idea of it. The truth is, these so-called E-sections stand inseparably connected with the J-narrative, are allowed to be all but indistinguishable from it in style, run parallel to it in content, and, generally, would never have been suspected of being part of another narrative but their peculiar use of the divine name. The fact of the distinction in the names of God remains, but it is neither uniform nor absolute and when not due, as sometimes happens, to discriminative use, may be explained in other ways, possibly, as Klosterman thinks, by editorial revision, as in the Elohistic Psalms. It cannot, in any case, outweigh the other strong marks of unity in the narrative. But is this not an imperfect statement? Are there not numerous marks of language, style, tone, mode of representation, by which the critics profess, irrespective of the divine names, to make a clear distinction between the assumed J and E writings. There are, and the value of them is seen in the fact that, where the clue of the divine name fails, discrimination is admitted to be hardly possible, and the greatest diversity obtains in the results secured. An example or two will illustrate the illusory character of these supposed criteria better than any general statement. I take them from a recent popular book, Professor J. E. McFadden's Introduction to the Old Testament. Mr. McFadden writes in an easy, pleasing style, and the reader, if not careful, is apt to be carried away by the flow of his lucid sentences. But let him test the assertions. The basis of it, the attempt at distinction, must of course be a study of the duplicate versions of the same incidents page 13. The, of course, here, takes it for granted as a thing about which there can be no dispute 
that the stories in question, for example, Abraham's denials of his wife Hagar in the wilderness, are duplicate versions of the same incidents. That is, he proceeds, such a narrative as Genesis 20, which uses the word God, Elohim, is compared with its parallel in 12:10 through 20, which uses the word Jehovah, once in 12:17, but once also in similar connection in 20:18. And in this way, the distinctive features and interests of each document will readily be found. Then comes the proof. The parallel suggested is easy and instructive, and it reveals the relative ethical and theological superiority of E to J. Others reverse the relation. J tells the story of Abraham's falsehood with a quaint naivete, 7. E is offended by it and excuses it, 20. The theological refinement of E is suggested not only here, 20 verse 3 and 6, but elsewhere, etc. Will the reader now take the trouble to look at these chapters for himself? He will discover, perhaps, to his surprise, that Jay's quaint naivete does not prevent him from representing Pharaoh as denouncing Abraham's sin in the severest terms, after Jehovah had plagued the king with great plagues on account of it. See also chapter 20, 17, and 18. And as summarily banishing Abraham and his wife and all that he had out of Egypt for his offense, chapter 12, 17 through 20. While E, who has the relative ethical and theological superiority, makes Abimelech load Abraham with presents, offer him the best of the land, and contend himself with a mild rebuke to Sarah, chapter 20, 14 through 16. Would it not be as easy to argue that it was Jay who had the keener moral sense? The supposed excuse is Abraham's explanation that Sarah was his half-sister, verse 12, a plea the truth of which there is no reason to doubt. Chapter 20, indeed, represents it as a settled policy on Abraham's part that at every place whither they came, Sarah was to pass as his sister, verse 13. Similarly, says Mr. McFadden, the expulsion of Hagar, which in J is due to Sarah's jealousy, 16, in E is attributed to a command of God, 21, 8-21. But the first instance is no expulsion, but a voluntary flight, and the two narratives are quite different. In the first, chapter 16, Ishmael is not yet born, and the angel, in promising his birth, directs Hagar to return to her mistress. Verse 9. In the second, chapter 21, Ishmael is grown up, and Abraham, deeply grieved, is directed to send Hagar away. Verse 12. Where is the difficulty? I have no doubt whatever that the two stories are distinct and that both were found in the original tradition. Part 5. This must suffice for the Pentateuchal documents. A few words may now be said on one or two other matters. In view of the very radical disagreements of eminent critics as to the most parts of the prophetic literature, to which Mr. Peake, in his aforementioned lecture, bears frank witness, pages 36 to 38, the less said as to the unanimity about the dates and authorship of the prophetic books, the better. There is much more reason for raising the question of this should in regard to these results. The whole treatment is a kind of whirligig, 
Caution is thrown to the winds. Subjective canons are freely employed in accepting or rejecting. One never gets to feel that his feet are firmly planted on anything. In the unbounded liberty of theorizing, no mortal can predict what cat will jump out of the bag next. For two Isaiahs, there are now no one knows how many. Doom, chain. Jeremiah is resolved into fragments, of which only portions come from the prophet and his secretary. The subject, says Mr. Addis, is too complicated and disputable to be treated here in detail. Parts even of Ezekiel are brought down to the first century B.C., Schmidt, and the prophecies against foreign nations are disputed, H.P. Smith. The minor prophets are subjected to drastic mutilation. Against these extreme conclusions, other critics wisely protest. But this whole region of criticism is at present a seething sea of controversy, and is bound to remain so till more sober guiding principles are adopted. The interest of the Christian church in these discussions has always centered very naturally in the book of Isaiah, and the problems of that book, despite all that has been written on 1st and 2nd Isaiahs, are still far from being satisfactorily solved. I may be permitted to refer to a piece of personal experience which made a considerable impression on my own mind. In early life, I studied with care what the great Dr. Samuel Davidson had to say on the subject of the unity of Isaiah in his Introduction to the Old Testament, 2nd edition, of date 1857. He had already made considerable advance in his critical positions, but he still held to and defended Isaiah's authorship of the second part of the book. He gave Nobel's objections at length and learnedly replied to them seriatim. He adduced counter-arguments in favor of the authenticity, including arguments drawn from diction, linguistic coloring, circle of ideas and images, etc. A little later, I became acquainted with Dr. Davidson's larger introduction, three volumes, 1862, and here met with a surprise. It was not simply that the author had, in the interval, become convinced of the exilian date of Isaiah 40 and following. That was conceivable. What did astonish me was that, in these short five years, all his judgments on the details of the arguments had undergone a complete reversal. All the pros at a stroke had become cons. All the cons, pros. Diction, circle of ideas, linguistic peculiarities had changed sides. Everything that was convincing before had become invalid. Everything that was unconvincing before had become demonstrable. I felt instinctively that there was something deeper in this than mere change of literary judgment. That a new standpoint had been adopted which controlled the judgment. It was like what the late Professor Romains tells of Professor Clifford at Cambridge. Clifford had only just moved at a bound from the extreme of asceticism to that of infidelity. An individual instance which I deem of particular interest in the present connection as showing the dominating influence of a forcedly emotional character even on so powerful an intellectual one. For the rationality of the whole structure of Christian belief cannot have so reversed its poles within a few months. The perception of this in Dr. Davidson determined me to be cautious in accepting critical conclusions in Bloch, and I have never had reason to regret the resolve. It is, I think, a fair question for criticism to raise. One, I mean, fairly arising out of the phenomena of the book. Whether in certain of the later chapters the standpoint of the prophet is not actually, as most will admit it to be ideally, in the exile. 
but the course of criticism itself shows that it is a question not quite so easily settled as many suppose. Gesenius was, for long thought, with good reason, to have established, with superabundance of learning, the unity of Isaiah 40-66, through 66, and his arguments constitute a strong bulwark still against the assailants of that unity. But was it exilic? Dr. Chain took an important step when, in 1880-82, he allowed that there were a considerable number of passages in 2nd Isaiah which clearly had a Palestinian, some of them a pre-exilian, character, and could not be reconciled with an origin in the exile. It is now usual to assume for these portions a late post-exilian origin. But apart from unsuitability of contents and that linguistic unity with other sections which Gesenius established, where is the evidence or probability of a prophet of the rank of Isaiah arising, say, in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah? To such considerations fail to be added the linguistic and other relations which the first part of the book, on which the older defenders of the Isaianic authorship rightly insisted. It will not be surprising if, by and by, criticism declares itself again for the unity of the bulk of the book, with, perhaps, some editorial revision, introducing, for example, the name Cyrus into the two verses where it occurs. Such a criticism might find support in the fact that the destruction of the city and temple and deportation to Babylon were unquestionably looked for as near in the days of Micah and Isaiah. See also Amos 2.5, Micah 3.12.4.10, Isaiah 6.11 and 12.39.6 and 7. Always with hope of restoration, Isaiah 11.11, etc. Though, as Jeremiah narrates 26.17-19, the fulfillment of the threatening was postponed on account of the repentance of king and people. End of section 8